This is Artist Soapbox. Through interviews and original scripted audio fiction, we deliver stories that speak to your hearts and your minds. Hey, Artist Soapbox. My name is Griffin James, and in today's episode, I sat down with my friend and collaborator, Rachel Clem. Rachel is a theater artist local to the Triangle area. She ran Common Ground Theater for 10 years and taught and directed at NC State University Theater for 15. You might remember her as the director for ASBX Shorts and I'm Not Here Right Now, all produced here at Artist Soapbox. In addition, Rachel has created multiple original shows, some of which are discussed today. We talk about creating new work, the creative process, following the imagination, and more. I left my conversation with Rachel feeling inspired to create something new, and I hope you do as well. And I want to thank you all for your time, whether you are listening at home, in the car, or for the first time. Welcome to Artist Soapbox. Hello, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining me here at the Artist Soapbox podcast. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Griffin. I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. (laughs) For anyone who might not be aware, I'm not Tamara Kassane. You're (laughs) not? (laughs) No, alas, not. It would be (laughs) so much fun if I were. I'm convinced that Tamara is a wizard because she is just magical. She is very magical. I agree. But I am guest hosting for Tamara. And in my episodes, I will be talking with artists who create original work to learn more about their process and how they come to create original work. So I would like to just start off by asking... How did you get your start in creating your own work? Well, I mean, I think I started creating work when I was a kid. I know I have a picture of me before I was, I may have been four years old and my sister and her best friend and I, and I had a best friend too, and we made a play. And then we would go around to people's houses and ask if they wanted to see our play. The first play was all about being drunk which to us as kids was hilarious in 1970, whatever, three or whatever. That was hilarious to us. So that's the play. I think that's, you know, it started that as early as that. And I don't, I think I'm trying to think, I think through college, mostly I did written work. And then almost directly after I got out of graduate school, I started creating work again for the public, (laughs) hopefully with better subject matter than just walking around being drunk which is not very funny anyway. You have created such a large body of work, and you have hit so many different genres and topics of show. You have adapted stories to the stage, including Shakespeare and mythology. In addition, you have created collaborative pieces of original device theater with Summer Sisters. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your process as you are creating work and how it might change as you are adapting or working with a group. I think that for me, all of those processes, it's important for me to have more than one voice in the creating process, in creating stories for people, for stage, or or if we did some digital stuff. I think because, honestly, 
feel like I have great ideas, but I don't necessarily write very well. I feel like I'm a really good writer of structure, but the sort of the the poetic nature of language eludes me. I, I don't trust myself as a writer. So I think I lean on other people to help me create stuff because I do trust them. Mm. And so that collaborative process is really important to me. And it doesn't bother me. I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything in the creative process because I'm not the strongest writer in the group. But I do feel like I do love the collaborative process. I love having one saying one thing and having someone riff off of that and come up with something else. And, you know, that riffing continues until something becomes really, you know, marvelous. And of course, I do. I've done a lot of improv in my life, too. I was trained as an improviser since a teenager. So I learned a lot about how to build stories with multiple voices, multiple voices. So someone says something and you build on that. Yes, and yes, and yes, and yes, and. And for me, finding that moment where that that brilliance happens together is so much more satisfying than finding that moment of brilliance by myself. Like that's anticlimactic once you've figured out how to do it with several people at a time. So I think that that kind of collaborative building of story and voice has always been part of what I do. I really love that answer. And I know for myself, a lot of writing has been primarily done in solitude. And I've done a lot of writing courses where we are encouraged to work in solitude. Wow. Yeah. But um, so it's very refreshing to hear a more collaborative process being the thing that works for you. Mm-hmm. And I find that even when I am writing in solitude, I still I still find that it works best when I do outreach for that that collaboration. Yeah. Um a lot of my background is in poetry and even after I write a poem, I feel confident in my own skills to assess whether it's good and what needs to be fixed, but sometimes I still just feel so caught up in it and I'm too close to the work and I I need to have someone outside of myself read it to ensure that I'm not missing anything so that I can polish it to the best of its ability. So I I really love that you have that integrated into your own process. Well, I would say that's how you know you're a real writer because you feel very strongly about your writing, rightfully so. I mean, you are a beautiful writer, but I, I don't, I can't ever see anything good in my writing. So it's always, for me, it's very easy. It's never precious. And it's very easy to let go of any of it. Mm. <laughs> Maybe because of my improv background, I'm super easy to, very easy to me to see a way just to throw it away and start over. But I think that's how you know you are a real writer. And, and as having read your writing, I know that you're a real writer because you can create words. You can use words in a, in a way that I never could even begin to, to do. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> I have this conversation with Tamara often, too. She says, you're a writer. And I'm like, no, you're a writer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I am not. <clears throat> I'm a storyteller. <laughs> I mean, even with that reframing, I still think that's a fun way to think about it. And I feel like for some people, it could even alleviate the pressure of creating stories. Like the idea of writing can sometimes sound uh, so pretentious. Right. (laughs) And so I don't know. I, I think that is a beneficial way to reframe it as not as a writer, but as a storyteller, especially if that is what helps you create the work. Yeah. And I mean, I know a lot of people who call themselves writers, but they don't have the body of work you do. (laughs) So honestly, 
if it works, it works. <laughs> I, and I, I commend it. <laughs> that is true. It is true. And, and, and it's funny. People do, you know, I love your writing. They say that to me all the time. And I really just almost always respond with a laugh because I don't know what to say. But I feel like I lean heavily on my collaborators. And so that's, I think that's, and that's part of the brilliance. I think that's part of the, the wonderfulness of it is that we build together. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I love about your work in partic- particular and why I really wanted to talk to you is that your work incorporates these unconventional and bold choices into the show. Uh, the two examples that come to mind are Trailer Park Christmas and Argo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to circle back to Argo in a minute, but for people who are not familiar, Trailer Park Christmas incorporates this immersive element where the audience enters the theater through the set and the actors continue to engage with the audience throughout the show. I'm wondering how these ideas came about. Was the show written with with that in mind or is that something that was integrated later on? Well, see, here, here I'm going to dispel any kind of, you know, awe you might feel. I stole that idea. (laughs) (laughs) There was a wonderful comedy group in San Francisco called Fratelli Bologna. And it was a group of four guys who did improv and they did a lot of classic clowning uh, shows for people. And they wrote this play called the Weber family Christmas And it was set in their home and the audience came through the door and they were greeted and they were given snacks and all of that was stolen, stolen, stolen. (laughs) (laughs) When I first moved to, when I opened up Common Ground Theater, we needed a Christmas show. So I wrote the brothers because I know them from San Francisco and asked if we could do their show. And they sent the show to me, allowed me to have the rights to do it. But I felt like it didn't suit the area very well. It was about the second coming of, of the Lord, of the King. And at the end, it was Elvis, <laughs> <laughs> which is a very funny play. It's a very funny play, but it didn't quite suit us. So I went ahead and, yeah, stole the idea. <laughs> at that point, I knew Jeffrey Moore. We were doing improv together, and I asked him if he wanted to help me write a play because he seemed like I wanted to set it in North Carolina. I really feel like that's been a part of entertainment that I've always found really fun is if the people feel connected to it on a personal level. Mm-hmm. So I felt like setting it in North Carolina, in the west side of Durham, in Common Ground Theater. We were running Common Ground Theater, needed our Christmas show. So I worked with Jeffrey Moore because he's the most North Carolina person I know. And we um, we took that premise, solely that premise of arriving to someone's home for a Christmas party and made it. North Carolina. So it became a trailer park. Jeffrey Moore grew up in a trailer park and it became the people that we know here in North Carolina, which I felt would connect a lot more to our audiences, which it did. I mean, you know, we did 11, 12 years, I think. So even the idea of stealing within the arts specifically, that feels less like a taboo. I mean, I know there's a book out there called Steal Like an Artist. And a lot of my education as a writer came from Dorian Locks, who used to teach with NC State University. But she would tell us all the time that you will probably never write anything truly original. Everything under the sun has probably already been said. And exactly. the most that we can do is 
apply our own perspective and our own vision to it. And even if the idea was for Trailer Park Christmas was stolen, it still feels like you were able to put your own perspective and your own viewpoint through it. And you were able to accomplish something new with this idea that already existed. Right. And of course, there's no new ideas under the sun. I mean, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I don't know where they got the idea from. As, like I said, they are. Um, they did a lot of very common, ancient, comedic tropes. So they, they themselves were, you know, we all beg, borrow, and steal. And you can tell, I mean, just reading Shakespeare, you can see all the stories, right? So, mm. <laughs> so yeah, so I didn't feel, I don't feel bad about it. No, I don't. I feel like, yeah, I took an idea and made it our own, which is what I think all artists do. Yeah. And and I mean, it resonated with a lot of people. I know myself, I absolutely loved Trailer Park Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) See, all I can do is laugh. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I don't know. I've lived in North Carolina most of my life, and I briefly lived in a trailer park. So maybe... My experiences are just biased. <laughs> well, that's what, the, what was the hope when we wrote the play is that people would connect to it on a personal level. And that our, yes, our own biases of being in North Carolina, we could laugh about that. We could have fun with mm-hmm. it. There was not a mean, there's no mean spiritedness in that show, which is part of what I love about it. And part of Jeffrey Moore, you know, he sees his people. I mean, I come from somewhere else, so I had to rely on him, but he sees his people with so much love. And that that's that joy I'm talking about being in the room with him riffing on, you know, making fun of his people is is so wonderful to me. That's that's the collaboration I love. And so to segue to Argo, that I feel like was one of the most unique pieces of theater I saw to come out (laughs) of the pandemic. I feel like a lot of theaters ran right to Zoom and stayed there. And and there isn't anything wrong with that. I, I saw a lot of good Zoom theater. Sure. But Argo just took an entirely different approach to creating. And it was just so fascinating for me. I was wondering if you could briefly describe that process. Yes. So Argo was... The, the thing that happened with Argo was we would... We were just trying to keep up with COVID restrictions as they were coming. So... I had seven or eight different outlines for that show. Uh, the first one, we were going to do a full scale production, <laughs> a Mary Zimmerman show. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then it, it just slowly got whittled back and back. We were just going to have mm-hmm. six people on stage in little pods. And then, and then we realized we couldn't do Zimmerman's play at all. It was just too big. So I, I offered to adapt a script, a Jason and the Argonauts script, I wrote that. I think I adapted it in four or five days. Oh, wow. Yes, but I had a great source. I mean, that's that's the important thing about adaptation is you have to have <laughs> a great source. So I had this source that had a lot of dialogue in it, and I felt like the language was very approachable. It was a children's book about the different Greek myths, and the Argonauts was one of them. And so so that was that made it easy. So I did write it very quickly and then felt like that polish was not there. And then, so that's where Tamara came in. And I invited Tamara to come in and, and be the writer in the room as opposed to the structurist. And so then the idea was that we would do a audio play. We had Tamara on board and she's, you know, she's the queen of all of this. So mm. I thought, you know, I love to figure out what 
skills and gifts we have in the room and then go with them. So it became an audio play. And then my daughter, here again, here's where I was inspired or where I stole. My daughter was in a play at high school and they moved to an audio play as well or a Zoom play. Uh, they were going to, most of the students did Zoom plays, but one, her director decided to draw pictures of the actors. So they taped the actors doing audio and then the this high school student drew pictures. And I'm like, okay, that's brilliant. Can we add something like this to Argo? And then also I was inspired by a short that was on Netflix at the time. <laughs> and I don't remember the series itself, what it's called, but it was about Queen Elizabeth and the Pope, and they were just little dolls, and they they did the audio, and then these dolls acted out the audio, and I loved that idea. I had done a sh- show, I'd written a show years before where I wrote out the audio and then took pictures of Barbies, so that seemed all that kind of like, how can we use this audio, but then create a visual element to it, mm-hmm. knowing that one person couldn't do an hour 10 piece all by themselves visually. Although, I mean, we did actually talk about the set designer at NC State, Jamie Melema, doing, you know, a design for the whole show. Decided that was way too much work for one person. So then we decided to split it up and find student designers to do that work. So yeah, it was just really a process of um, problem solving process, which I think making theater is a lot. It's just, oh, we've hit a wall. How do we get over it? How do we get around it? How do we lean against it for a while? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think one thing that I really appreciated about the process you took with Argo was the way in which it was able to invite new artists into the industry and into this creative process of putting on a show. I remember when I was directing my first play that ended up not happening thanks to this funny little thing called COVID. (laughs) I remember I was talking to my actress, Reagan, and I asked her, like, do you think you will do more theater after this production? And she, she said she was unsure. She would like to, but she also wanted to focus a bit more on her visual art because that was another piece of her artistic identity that was important to her. And then I saw that she was going to be one of the visual artists for Argo. And I I just got so excited because I'm like, ah, this is exactly what she wanted to pursue. And now she was and there was a way for her to do both at the same time. And I was so happy that there were new avenues for artists to be involved with the program and to put on these shows. Yeah. And her work was amazing. And I mean, all of the artists work was amazing. And I was I was blown away, actually, (laughs) by the Mm -hmm. artistry, their artistry. This was really above and beyond what I thought was going to happen. I think that sometimes people think young people are not going to be accomplished or insightful or, you know, they're going to be, their work is going to be immature. And this project completely proved that wrong. (laughs) That was some of the most mature, artistic, creative design work I'd seen. You know, it was just some really amazing stuff. And Reagan's drawing ability was amazing. No, I I absolutely agree. I just remember being blown out of the water by it and just so fascinated by the modality that was taken. Yeah. Um, And one of the, I think one of the stances we had to take for that project to be successful was that it was process-based, that it was really about finding our way. It wasn't about how it was going to end up. I had to remind people 
many times to let go of the end product. Like, what if it's not good? We're in the middle of a pandemic. It doesn't matter. We're doing the work. It doesn't have to be good. (laughs) And I, I mean, I feel like that approach even just encourages a new sense of adaptability. Yeah. That is very important for people to learn. But I'm curious, is there anything you learned about theater or about creating through the process of Argo that you might not have learned through quote unquote traditional show? What I learned through that process was how important creating and making art is. I learned that the most wonderful thing about Argo was that everybody came in with the spirit of creation and the spirit of letting go of product. And even though we had to remind ourselves several times throughout, I think that what it really proved to me different than other plays, which are on a, on a schedule on a really tight schedule in the head, there's really high expectations of how it's going to be. Even if you're trying something new, even if you're trying to think out of the box, there's still so many parameters of traditional theater. I'm going to put quotes around traditional, but of, you know, a standard written piece mm-hmm. that you put on stage. I think we didn't really know what we were doing, so we were really free in that way. I think that the fact that we focused on process allowed for a lot of freedom and pure creativity, which is something that I always found we can talk about Summer Sister and Sisters in a second, because I always found like with Summer Sisters, we found this pure creativity. I felt like with Argo, we found pure creativity because there was no there was no box to be in you know we were making it up as we went along and even if we had an expert like Tamara on board it didn't mean that <laughs> it didn't mean that there were any any rules to follow so i think that that part was i learned a lot about this sort of creating in a free fall mm-hmm. And I also learned a lot about how important creating is to to the human spirit, <laughs> you know, as creators. And I'm sure you felt this way when you, your play didn't get to perform. When you're putting that energy in, and then I think for creative people, when there's no place to put that energy, we become very depressed and, <laughs> you know, don't fit in the world. That's how we fit into the world. So what I was really struck by was the need for people to create, for these people to have an outlet. I think a lot of us felt that way in COVID, but the people really needed someplace to put that part of themselves. And that is one of the biggest takeaways I have. That's a very beautiful answer. Thank you. Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) I just made it up. (laughs) Uh, Well, I loved it. Definitely resonated with me. No, no, it's, it's it was true. Even still, as we're coming back to teaching classes, putting on plays, uh, you can tell people need it. People want it. People mm-hmm. are there for it. And it's, it's, I think we take it for granted, don't we? Just like anything else, we take our creative process for granted. And it's not until, you know, we can't do it that we realize, oh, this is, this is, you know, a huge part of me. Kind of on topic of thinking outside of the box and working on shows where the box is entirely eliminated. I feel like a lot of early career artists or hell, even even people later in their careers who create original content, they might have these bold or unconventional ideas, but might be nervous to try them out or to put them to page. 
I know a lot of playwrights who shy away from some of these ideas because they want to be, quote unquote, more producible. With that in mind, I'm wondering what advice you might give to these people. Do you have any practices that you turn to to ignore that voice of doubt in the back of your mind? Yeah, I think that in the creative process, judgment is not necessarily helpful. I often find myself, I think, I think of myself as being a very self-judgmental person. And I practice techniques to excuse the judge from the room <laughs> hmm. and let that, that part of my brain sort of shut down, at least in the beginning, especially with those preliminary ideas. I just think there are no bad ideas. There are no bad starts. And getting started is often the hardest part. So I I excuse the judge. I say, okay, you know what? It's not going to be good. I don't care. Um, it may be, you know, I might be stealing a bunch of ideas. I don't care. <laughs> <You know? laughs> might not sound the way I want. may not go the way I want. But I think that just allowing myself to be in a place where that kind of judgment doesn't matter. And that's not easy. I do an actual exercise where I visualize my judge and open the door and let her leave and then shut the door. So, I mean, that's that's a physical exercise I actually have done with myself. But I think it's been writing or putting ideas to paper long enough that that judge, and again, back to improv, because if you've done enough improv, learn to let it go, <laughs> learn to let theater be ephemeral, right, mm. in the moment and doesn't have to be. The first iteration is not going to be permanent. So I think those kind of ideas really help, help me. I do have this feeling I get when I come across a really good idea. And I don't know what that is or how to explain it, except for that I get really excited. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I, you know, and then my mind starts popping and I start, you know, really thinking about things. That's happened about four or five times in my life. Trailer Park Christmas was one of those <laughs> <times>. <laughs> But I think that, there, yeah, there's something that, I think the impetus getting started is the most important part. And if you can if you can allow yourself not to get in the way, <laughs> that's the, the best you can do. I love that, especially just the physical act of getting up and yeah. kicking the judge out. <laughs> kicking her out. Yeah, I, I had a, a wonderful acting teacher who taught me that. And also just the, the idea of getting it out and acknowledging that it can be reiterated and changed and adapted if necessary. Well, the first one's not going to be good. I just don't think the first, for me, the first thing that goes down, the idea might be good, but the, whatever comes from it is is, is not going to good. Because I think what happens with the brain, for me at least with ideas, is that my brain starts at the surface. And then as I start to think about it or research it or write about it or do whatever, my brain gets to a deeper place with it. So I can't expect where I started to be anywhere except for the surface. I have to scratch and scratch and dig and dream about what's under the surface. So there's no way for me in my process that the first parts, the first iteration is going to be the right iteration. Yeah. And as you are putting these to page and reworking them, do you do anything to keep yourself on a certain schedule? Like, do you self-impose deadlines or, or are you already in collaboration with people? So you need to get them to it by X time? Both. I am often under, a, yes, a collaborative deadline, but I'm also pretty, 
I was going to say strict with myself, but maybe disciplined is a better word. Hmm. I do set myself up to get something done by a certain day. I set my own deadlines. That comes from, I think, from running Common Ground Theater and having to be the only person who, being the only person working there and everything depends on me. So I I got pretty good at setting up multi-schedules for myself and following them. I also know that when it comes time to hit the writing, I procrastinate. Mm -hmm. I hate it. It feels like going out to, you know, to take a run or exercise. I mean, it really feels like a discipline. It really feels like I (laughs) something eating well. I don't know all of those things. It's something I have to do, have Mm -hmm. to make myself do. And I might not enjoy it as I'm doing it either. But I do enjoy, I do appreciate the discipline and and getting the work done, getting further along or as far as long as I set up for myself to get. I think a lot about Dorothy Parker as I'm writing. She has this quote. It might be one of my favorite quotes ever. She once said something along the lines of, I hate writing, but I love having written. Yes. Aww. And that that's me to a T. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, I call myself a writer, and, like, I have a degree in English creative writing. But at the same time, forcing myself to sit down and physically write is one of the hardest parts of the entire process. It's painful. Oh, so painful. And I try to ask people about their own schedule system, because uh, one thing I'm finding is that solitary doesn't work quite as well for me. Uh I work better when I am in collaboration, because... I can set my own deadlines and I will ignore it because who the hell is he? <laughs> but um, right. but if it's someone outside of myself, there's this obligation or added responsibility to get the pages to them on time. Sure. And I find that works better for me. But I'm always just interested in how people are able to put their pages out because that's just something I struggle with personally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's always helpful to have someone to keep you keep you on track or to keep you to your word for sure. So to segue into a bit of a a, a new topic in trailer park Christmas, you have this beautiful moment where you pass out macaroni boxes and you hand them to the audience to use as instruments (laughs) at the end of the song. Your character tells the audience to keep the macaroni. If they are in need of food, I still think about that and how it is a subtle way to give back and to talk about poverty without making it a direct confrontation. So Mm -hmm. I kind of want to shift gears to talk about tools, big or small, that we can incorporate into our work to address social issues. Yeah, that's a big question. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) How can we change the world with art? (laughs) No pressure. That idea came to me because I had done that, again, we did that show for lots of years, and those were improvised moments, although I would settle on a funny line for those moments. For people who haven't seen this show, we hand out snacks, we interact with the audience, but this is a dancing moment where they're shaking the macaroni and cheese like maracas. And I had some sort of funny line that I said for years, and then I was reading $2 a day which is a book about poverty. And we were talking about food scarcity in at university theater at North Carolina state. So it was on my mind, you know, and that's sort of, that's sort of the same way I'm talking about writing. It's like, 
as I'm absorbing information from other places, it was just on my mind. And I thought, I'll just put that in the, I'll just say that, you know, you can take that home. If you're not going to have something for Christmas dinner, go ahead and take that home. Again, that shows intention is with all the love in the heart that we created that show with all the love in our heart. So that specific line did come from me acknowledging that our people live in a trailer park and, you know, but also acknowledging that there might be someone for real in the audience who, who might need a box of macaroni and cheese. How do we change the world through art? I think that comedy, of course, is always a wonderful inroad to be able to laugh at our vulnerabilities. I think we're all vulnerable. And I think that one of the beautiful, thing, beautiful things about Trailer Park Christmas is we, we laugh at the vulnerabilities of being <laughs> North Carolinians. We laugh at, you know, our own particular group of foibles, which again, I love and I feel like brings people much closer together. So comedy is a great way to do that. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Doing improv, that kind of stuff comes up all the time where you process the world around you. You know, you're doing a scene and it's about a divorce. And of course, you're using what you know. And so that works its way into your improv. I guess I think that as an artist, it's my job to filter filter that the struggles that humans have and present it in a way that we can talk about it. So for me, it's sort of like one of the, it's probably the main spark of creativity is connection, human connection through the good stuff and the bad stuff, acknowledging the bad stuff. I really like how even after you have worked on Trailer Park Christmas for many years, you still find moments of opportunity to adjust it, to incorporate moments such as that and how you allow yourself to be almost permeable. Yeah. I think of myself as a bit of a sponge. I soak stuff up. I remember a lot of things like they just stick in my brain. And so I feel like I have a a catalog of ideas to kind of pull from as I go along. I think with the idea of allowing not only yourself to be absorbent to new information and to allow the work to be permeable by nature. I feel like that is something that could be really applicable to the industry itself. I know pre-pandemic, a sentence I heard a lot was, uh, well, this is how it's always been done. And so they just want to maintain that status quo and to uphold that that tradition and the structures already in place mm-hmm. just out of pure convenience. But I really appreciate that, that adaptability and flexibility you provide for your work and for a trailer park Christmas. And I feel like a lot of companies could benefit just from the idea of being willing to change and to be open to that change. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. I just feel like, I mean, the one One of the good things about COVID, if one can say that, one of the good things about COVID (laughs) is that we really have started more people, not that plenty of people have already been doing this work, but more people are really investigating the way we create theater specifically, which is, is very harmful in its practice. And I think that the TV and movie industry is very harmful in its practice and realizing that pumping entertainment out is not as important as people's health. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. not as important as artists 
resiliency. And I'm hoping that we, other people, but I, I particularly am really committed to finding ways to, that we can create content without losing our health and ourself. It's not, I don't think it's conducive to putting out good art. Yeah, I feel really strongly about that right now. And one of the things I do want to go back to Summer Sisters, because one of the great things about Summer Sisters, when Tamara and I first devised it, was that we really wanted to work with women who may have had families, who had jobs, who were, we knew were creative beings, but may have had these scheduling or life challenges that made it really hard. So we looked to create a very casual <laughs> and comfortable place where we could, where these women that we knew existed in our community that were really brilliant artists could come without the punitive or the, you know, the strict measures that come with theater. You have to be here every day, every time mm -hmm. you have to, you know, memorize this amount of stuff. So we really created it in a way to allow for, to, to break out of that the way everyone's always done it which I think was really wonderful in some ways. And we, we got a lot of work done. We did find in other ways it was hard because if we didn't have that strict discipline, that sometimes we wouldn't have anybody show up. Mm. <laughs> and then it would, you know, and then we'd have several weeks where it'd be just the two of us. So there, there's, there's some fine tuning, but I think that ultimately for theater to survive this break, this COVID, we have to just re- Imagine it. I don't want to do it the old way. I'm not interested in feeling pressure and not sleeping and eating, not eating and, you know, losing my mind. Oh, it's only for a month. Well, you know, if you're doing that six or seven times a year, that's mm -hmm. too much. And I feel like, I feel like the processes that we do with theater are really tied into Broadway yeah. and the structure that they have because they only have their theater for, you know, a week before they do the show. So when we're in it, educational situation where we have the theater all the time. Why do we have to plug, why do we have to squish it all into one week or one weekend, to be honest? Why do we, why do we do that? So hopefully other people are really interested in looking at new ways. And I know they are, they're out there. I've, I've met them, them and I've seen them. And of course, none of this, even the fact that we're talking about being new and thinking out of the box, it's not. Some people have been doing this kind of work forever. Yeah. I am sure that we could, continue this conversation for hours <laughs> and i really hope not only you and i but other people continue to have these conversations yeah i really believe that they are important to have and essential but um as we wrap up i do want to check in and ask if there's anything else you wanted to talk about i would like to thank you and i also want to thank tamara who asked me to do this podcast lots and lots of years ago first when she first started and i was not in a good place as an artist and i had just gone through a divorce and a major death in my family and I, my self esteem was really low and i appreciated her asking and i appreciated her understanding that there's sometimes that we can't talk about our art we need to take a break. And so I think that what I would say is if anybody else feels those lulls, those those lows and highs of creativity, especially if you're when you're in that low part, that I think we all go through it. 
And at least personally, I understand and I hope that if someone's feeling that way, knowing that for me, that was six years ago or so that it it does get better. (laughs) I don't know if anyone needs to hear that, but that here I am six years after being asked to do this podcast the first time and I'm, I'm here and I'm, I'm doing it. So I just, I wanted to bring that up and thank both you and Tamara for continuing to hold me in your, <laughs> in your thoughts as an artist <laughs> as I come, come out of a slump. And I want to thank you just for agreeing to be here and for doing this and just for sharing so openly and vulnerably. I feel honored to be able to have conversations such as this with you. You are an artist whose work I greatly admire. And to be able to speak with you and to collaborate with you has just been such an honor for me. Thank you. And I am honored to work with you and know you too. <laughs> what? Me? Yes, no. you. What? Stop. Yes, Tell me more. Griffin. <laughs> <laughs> um. Mutual fan club. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, though. What a what a what a great place to end on. Yeah. Just a, a moment of mutual love. <laughs> yes. Established in 2017, Artist Soapbox is a podcast production studio based in North Carolina. Artist Soapbox produces original scripted audio fiction and an ongoing interview podcast about the creative process. We cultivate aspiring audio dramatists and producers, and we partner with organizations and individuals to create new audio content. For more information and ways to support our work, check out artistsoapbox.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The Artist Soapbox theme song is Ashes by Juliana Finch.